All of God's creation is amazing and wondrous, but perhaps the most complex and incredible are the things we can't see. For example, inside the microscopic cell, hundreds of thousands of little machines work to keep us alive. How do they do it? Stay tuned. Life would be impossible, and yet it has to be produced without natural selection before even the first living cell could survive. This is Science, Scripture, and Salvation, a Creation Radio Journal. I'm Chris O'Brien with the Institute for Creation Research. Colossians 1.16 says, For by Him were all things created, that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by Him and for Him. Come with us for the next 15 minutes, won't you, into an invisible world of tiny cities inside our cells and find out why they are so important to us. Dr. David DeWitt is director of the Center for Creation Studies and associate professor of biology at Liberty University in Virginia. He gives us the definition of a cell. Cells are the fundamental unit of life. All living things are made of one or more cells. And the human body has over a trillion of these cells. And each of these cells are many different molecular machines that carry out the functions that that cell needs in order to survive, repair itself, reproduce, and carry out whatever function it serves, whether that's secreting hormones or contracting in the case of a muscle cell. And cells have specific jobs for specific areas of the body. Dr. Ross Anderson is professor of biology at the Masters College in California. In a multicellular organism, there are a number of different cells. They're organized into tissues, you might say. We've got cardiac cells organized into the heart and work together for the function of pumping the blood through our cardiovascular system. We've got liver cells or hepatocytes that are brought together to form the liver, and the liver has a multitude of functions. For every tissue or type of tissue you can think of or name in the body, there is a group of cells that are specialized to enable that tissue to carry out its function. Dr. Thomas Kindle is founder and president of Reasons for Faith Apologetics Ministries in Eagle Point, Oregon. He says what goes on inside a single cell is comparative to how a great metropolis is run. If you were to take New York City and shrink it down to the size of a microscopic cell, then you'd get an idea of the complexity and of the orchestration of function that goes on in that cell. The cell has a membrane that is like a border check system that only allows certain things in, certain things out. It has a vast uh, transportation highway system that shuttles and chaperones certain substrates here and there and everywhere. It has machines that are like trucks for transportation. It has communication systems. It has manufacturing systems. It has information storage and retrieval systems. It has powerhouse systems to produce energy. It has every analog that we find in a major city, except in microscopic form. And the amazing thing about the cell city is that it builds itself, maintains itself, runs itself automatically, repairs itself automatically, and then it can reproduce itself automatically without any outside help. And we cannot make any kind of a machine, much less a machine as complex as New York City, that can do all that and then reproduce itself with extremely high fidelity. But this city is far too complex to be run by humans. It's a city built by robots, run by robots, and uh, reproduced by robots, and all these robots are programmed. They know how and what they're supposed to do and exactly how they're supposed to interface and interact with other robots. They're all, to use our, our own modern jargon, computerized. 
And you can't just look at a city like that and say that happened by chance. You know, it is far, far in excess of anything produced by human ingenuity and indeed could not be duplicated by a dream team of our top scientists with all the trillions of dollars of the world's money in the banks available at their disposal. They couldn't begin to produce it if we started with the basic chemical uh, elements of carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, oxygen, etc. Let's take a closer microscopic look at the details of just one machine unit of a cell. Dr. Anderson. Molecular motors, as they're often referred to, are not unlike many man-made motors or machines. Under the hood of a car, you find the motor, but the motor is actually a bunch of working parts that all work together to achieve the same goal, and that is propulsion of the car. In the cell, we also have many different examples of molecular machines. In other words, large protein conglomerates where each protein or each part of this conglomerate is busy doing its particular function so that the entire conglomerate can carry out its function. If any one of the pieces are missing or is defective, then the whole protein conglomerate begins to become malfunctioning. So what are some of these incredible molecular machines we've been hearing about? Dr. DeWitt. The proteasome is an important molecular machine. It's kind of a trash compactor recycling bin. Old or damaged proteins that are no longer needed are tagged for destruction. The proteasome itself is a barrel-shaped structure with something of a lid on both sides. It recognizes the tags on damaged proteins and allows them to enter. Inside the barrel are proteases, enzymes that degrade the protein into amino acids and tiny peptide fragments that emerge from the barrel where they can be metabolized or reincorporated into new proteins. Incredible. Another fascinating molecular machine is the gate, which regulates nuclear transport. Cells need to move proteins into the nucleus as well as messenger RNA molecules out. It's not a random process, but is very well regulated by a gate complex of over 50 different proteins that comprise the nuclear pore complex. The nuclear transport gating system also has many different cargo receptor proteins. These are proteins in the nucleus or in the cytoplasm which recognize specific sites on the proteins or molecules that need to go on into the nucleus or out of it. And there's a unidirectional mechanism that ensures that molecules are transported only in one direction, either in or out, as necessary. The nuclear transport system allows for the specific settling of materials across the nuclear membrane. Some things go in and others go out. We know that without energy, we couldn't exist. But where does all of our energy come from and how is it made? Dr. Kindle. It's interesting that the energy currency which drives the energy operations of every cell from the tiniest single-celled organism to human beings to the largest animal in the world, the blue whale, is ATP, which is adenosine triphosphate. It is the energy currency of all living organisms. Without ATP, you would die literally in seconds. In fact, the reason cyanide is so deadly and kills within seconds is because it inhibits the body's ability to utilize ATP. Now, the tiniest cell has got to have production of ATP, and we have now found that it is produced by an incredibly complex enzyme, which is actually a rotary machine, the ATP synthase uh, enzyme. And these machines are housed inside structures called mitochondria. Dr. David DeWitt explains. 
mitochondria is a power plant. Just as electrical plant uses fuel like coal to burn in order to produce electricity, the mitochondria uses chemical fuel, ultimately from sugar, to generate the ATP, which serves as the energy currency in cells. The fuel is used to pump hydrogen ions out of the mitochondria's inner structure, and this generates a gradient of ions. The cell then harnesses these ions flowing back, just as a hydroelectric plant harnesses falling water. And the flowing ions cause a protein complex, the ATP synthase complex, to spin. And as it spins, it produces ATP, adding a phosphate to ADP. Dr. Anderson. ATP is the energy currency for virtually all cells. And so you, you have to have a way of making ATP. And what they do is they utilize electrons that they get from your food and run these electrons down through the inner membrane of the mitochondria through a variety of electron transport protein complexes. Within these complexes, there are proton pumps. And these pumps pump not air, not water. They pump protons from inside the mitochondria to outside of the mitochondria. So what is the ATP synthase made up of? And just how powerful is it? Dr. Kindle. This enzyme has amazingly nine different components, nine different molecular parts of five different types of proteins. And it's put together in a very marvelous way that produces a rotary engine with enormous power and torque. And the experiments, they've been able to put a long molecule on it, actin, a protein, a hundred times longer than this rotary machine, and yet it was able to rotate something even that long, which shows it has enormous torque. But it requires great power because it has to take and force uh, the coupling of a phosphate group with ADP, which is adenosine diphosphate, to form the ATP, adenosine triphosphate, which is life's energy currency. And these things are found all over the mitochondria, the powerhouses of the cells, and appear, therefore, probably to be the most common protein or enzyme in all of uh, biology. And yet, it is a complex machine. If you take any part out of that machine, it won't function, just like any other machine. You've got to have all the parts in the right interrelationship, interdependently functioning, or the system as a whole becomes inoperative. So if the ATP synthase molecular motor will not function if any of its components are missing, where does that leave the evolutionary belief of things slowly coming into being? Here we've got a horrific dilemma for the evolutionists. They have got to account for a complex machine without which life could not even exist for seconds. Therefore, the machine would have to be produced before a cell could live. And that means it would have to be produced under the choking restrictions of Darwinism, which are even worse at the pre-biological level, because there they cannot even invoke natural selection. And even some popular evolutionists are perplexed when they see the intricate design of cells. Perhaps the greatest spokesman for evolution today since Stephen Gould passed away is Richard Dawkins of Oxford. And he has admitted that organisms are too complex and improbable and too designed to have happened by chance. However, he said it's not produced by an intelligent god, it's produced by the blind watchmaker of natural selection. Talk about an oxymoronic concept. Has anybody ever heard in the history of the world of a blind watchmaker? You might imagine a master watchmaker who had lost uh, his sight, and yet with his mind he's able to visualize what the watch parts look like, 
But with evolution, we have a watchmaker that's not only blind, it's also brainless. It has no intelligence. It has no consciousness. It has no ability to have forethought and to try to think out a problem and try to anticipate what is the next step that's needed to reach a certain solution. It's blind and brainless and unconscious. And not only that, when it comes to the origin of life, he's not only blind and brainless and unconscious, he's also non-existent because natural selection cannot be invoked at the pre-biological level. And that's where you have to get the ATP synthase rotary engine to produce ATP. Without ATP, nothing can live longer than seconds. And without that, life would be impossible. And yet it has to be produced without natural selection before even the first living cell could possibly survive. So, once again, we see how lovingly and perfectly our great creator not only made, but also sustains life for us. Dr. DeWitt. When we look at things that man has made, the closer we look, the more flaws we can see. But when we look inside cells at these molecular machines and look at them closer and see how they function, it really points to how magnificent and wise our Creator is who made all of this. Thank you for joining us for another fascinating broadcast on Science, Scripture, and Salvation. If you'd like to learn more about science and creation research, you can find us on the web at www.icr.org. Join us again next time as we investigate another intriguing topic on Science, Scripture, and Salvation. Thanks for tuning in. Science, Scripture, and Salvation, a Creation Radio Journal is a production of ICR. For the Institute for Creation Research, I'm Chris O'Brien. Thanks for tuning in.